everybody. Welcome to today's One Million by One Million podcast. As you know, One Million by One Million is the first and only global virtual accelerator for startups. And today we are talking to Nitin Pachesia from Unshackled Ventures. Nitin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell us about Unshackled Ventures. What is the focus of the firm? How big is the fund? What size investments do you make? Let's get to know each other a bit. Sure. We're a very young pre-seed fund. Uh, we started about three and a half years ago. Um, we invest exclusively our initial investments at pre-seed stage, uh, which is effectively pre-product uh, in most cases and pre-sustainable revenue in all cases. Uh, mm-hmm. We focus on immigrant-founded companies. That's the niche, that, that's the gap in the market that we're looking to fill with our mm-hmm. approach. And um, this came out of our personal experiences uh, looking at when immigrant founders who've already come to the U.S. through the school system or the corporate system, when they're looking to start companies, uh, besides the usual challenge in a company, they're also dealing with a few of their demands on their time, specifically to deal with either uh, the immigration policies, or in addition to that, connecting with the right people who will help them build this business faster. Um, so mm-hmm. with capital and the venture resources specifically built to address these, uh, we started in Shackled Ventures. We write uh, 100 to 500K checks, which are always in a lead capacity at the pre-seed stage. Uh, most of the rounds are uh, in that sub 500K range. Um, mm-hmm. And we take most of the rounds to often co-invest or have co-investors as well. And how big is the fund? Um, I think I'm precluded from saying that because of some SEC requirements because we're still raising, but our SEC filing was $25 million. So let's just roll with okay. that. <laughs> now, tell us about the types of ventures you're focusing on, industry sector, B2B, B2C, what are the components of your investment strategy? Yeah, I mean, we're, our focus is always to invest early at pre-seed and the founder mix being at least one of the founders not born in the U.S. We mm-hmm. also reserve capital to invest at seed and A in pro rata management. Uh, from a sector perspective, we don't have any specific focus. It's, it's more a founder focus. So we look at the founder's vision look at what impact they're trying to make with the solution that they're, that they're creating, um, and can they build a lasting business with that? So we've invested across the tech spectrum, all the way from consumer to business, um, you know, back in IT infrastructure, robotics, distributed computing, you name it. Um, so it's really not thematic investing from a sector perspective, but thematic from a founder perspective. And both B2C and B2B? Yes. Okay. And what about geography? You said immigrants, but your focus is Silicon Valley, immigrants in Silicon Valley, immigrants in the U.S., immigrants in certain parts of the U.S. How do you break that down? Immigrants all over the U.S. And and I wouldn't say that. So just to be clear, our portfolio founders are not all immigrants, right? So it's oftentimes the the co-founders are a citizen and an immigrant, just like my partner and I are. He's a citizen, I'm an immigrant. And so mm-hmm. uh, it's truly an American mix, very reflective of, of the the way the American ecosystem is. Um, our portfolio companies and our deal flow comes from all over the U.S. Uh, we don't mm-hmm. have a, a Silicon Valley bias 
um, or Silicon Valley focused as such. Um, and that's also reflective of how, um, you know, immigrants, when they come to the U.S., they are already making a choice of leaving their home country and coming to somewhere in the U.S. Beyond that, we, we say we should be where the entrepreneur is. So we have built our networks and relationships in a way that we can access entrepreneurs wherever in the U.S. they are. Occasionally, okay. we are introduced to entrepreneurs um, through our network who the entrepreneurs may not be physically in the U.S. at the moment, but they have some U.S. ties. They've studied in the U.S. or worked in the U.S. in the past, and, yeah. and then they, they, they left to do something else. Uh, but in all cases, they have some U.S. ties as well. So we have a lot of companies in our portfolio that would fit your investment thesis so far as what you have told us just now. Great. Well, tell us a bit about what trends you're seeing in your deal flow. So I'm I'm going to get to your current portfolio in a minute, but I want to get a sense of what you're seeing in the market out there. What are investors coming up, I mean, entrepreneurs coming up with? What kinds of things do you see that are you know, trend lines in that pool? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest trend just given our focus that you would imagine is diversity, right? So we see founders of, um, from, from all, uh, all over the world. We, in our portfolio, we have founders from 16 different countries, um, <clears throat> a really strong gender mix because obviously diversity attracts diversity. Um, most of our most of our inbound deal flow comes through referrals from other entrepreneurs, investors, and universities, which by itself creates a very diverse mix. So that that's kind of the biggest trend is um, looking at a very diverse picture. What that then lends into is similarly a very diverse picture of where technology is trending. And so um, we're seeing, you know, obviously a lot of applications of artificial intelligence to solve complex problems, um, especially where humans were playing the middleware role. And so I would say that's kind of a a, a big mega trend. Um, Robotics, applications of robotics, applications of blockchain, um, and then recent developments around uh, medicine and health, such as CRISPR. Um, You know, these are are things that used to be um, kind of theoretical technologies that that we grew up reading about or, or watching in science shows, and now these are actual um, usable technologies on which applications are being built. So uh, I would say the most exciting part for me is seeing a lot of that theory translate into applications and making real-life impact. Yeah. And talk about your portfolio. What have you invested in? What's interesting? You know, take take a few highlights of your portfolio and walk us through what they are why they have, why you've invested in them and what is the thought process? Sure. Uh, so we've made 18 investments in two and a half years, which is reflective of our pace of about eight to 10 investments per year. Uh, we mm-hmm. stay selective despite a very large, um, I believe we're seeing about 1,500 companies a year. Uh, but we like to ma- maintain that pace to be able to dedicate enough time to every company we invest in. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> In terms of you know some of the examples of portfolio companies, um, you know, I would say we, we have a company in the driverless trucking space um, called Starsky Robotics, and and they are not um, the you know the typical um, let's just go full autonomous company. We really liked their ingenuity around how they came up with the approach of 
going through phases and they're looking at first the drone style remotely manned trucks which then gives them a data advantage to um, automate trucks on freeways and then eventually hopefully at some point in time even um, inroads and so um, you know this is a company led by um, an American citizen and um, an IAP and from India um, so that's an example of a company that's moving fast. Um, another one I would say an, an applied AI example would be Pluto. Um, mm-hmm. That was our very first investment, and um, the founder has published uh, seven or eight books on artificial intelligence. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, he's a he's a well-known uh, blogger in the space. Um, he's done many TEDx talks and. They've taken um, something that's very elementary in the water infrastructure world, which is every piece of equipment is being monitored and is connected. So there's a ton of data um, Mm -hmm. throughout the infrastructure, except what they've not been able to do is use that data towards a meaningful outcome, such as preventing accidents or reducing energy consumption, which energy Mm -hmm. makes 32% of operating costs in that world. And so... Here's a company that's using deep learning to save water and save the and, and reduce the cost of water, um, and it, you know, very real life um, impact, but not something that you usually hear about, especially in the in the Silicon Valley bubble that we live in. Water infrastructure is not that common um, mm-hmm. or that commonly known. Um, you know that's that. So similarly, we have a few other examples of applied AI companies, um, some of which have even um, created their own sensor technology to capture a very unique form of data, and now mm-hmm. they can use that to derive something that was prior to them not available. So, for example, taking the ultra wideband radar data, which is noise waves, um, and converting them into machine vision. Um, to be able to map indoors. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's something that gives you the the precision of a camera with the privacy of a motion sensor, right? And that's the, that's the missing piece when you, when you think of indoor automation. So we, we, we're seeing a lot of those sensor-enabled um, data, which then uh, when you apply computer vision or uh, deep learning, machine learning on them, gives you a whole new way of approaching the problem. Um, Our last investment, uh, for example, is in a space tech company. Um, They're using optical sensors um, deployed on microsats to monitor methane gas emissions throughout the world. Um, And now, again, methane is one of the top contributors to global warming. So, um, you know, there's there's the human sustainable earth element to it, and it makes a lot of business sense because um, companies... Uh, methane is a valuable gas, so companies want to capture it, but also there's um, fines and penalties and, and costs of not being able to monitor and capture it. So those are those are some examples of um, of some of the portfolio companies on the on the co- consumer side. Um, you know, one of our portfolio companies is Lilly, um, which is uh, it's basically taking a perception engine approach to understanding the emotional and perceptive side of the shoppers mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and then using that to help them discover the right product. So it's not more about, it's not so much about what do you want to buy and let me show you the most personalized experience of what you want to buy. 
But let's let's understand why are you looking to buy something so that you can come to the right <clears throat> right thoughts on what you should be looking at. Okay, interesting. Have you had any exits yet? Uh, too early for that. If we if we had any exits, they won't be big ones. So you know, like yeah. I said, we just they, we just started investing two and a half years ago, and we're investing at pre-seed stage. So you can you can expect you know add another year to the life cycle of a seed funds exit cycle. Right. Um, so no no exits yet, but uh, we're, we're we're very excited with uh, where our portfolio companies are trending. And which. Um investors do you like to co-invest with for pre-seed or do you write the checks by yourself? You know, it's, it's very situational. So we fortunately, we have a very large relationship base. We know a lot of uh, angels. Uh, we know a lot of VCs who like to do pre-seed as well. So situationally, uh, depending on the needs of the founders and depending on who would make a good co-investor in that particular situation will um, either just do the whole round ourselves or um, bring in angels or micro VCs who are investing at pre-seed with us. Um, in other situations, we make an investment and then, you know, the founders make some progress over the next three to four months, and then they will go out and um, raise a little bit more pre-seed capital before going out to raise a formal seed round in a little bit. So, it, it, it differs by each situation. And um, what about um, the vehicle? Are you doing equity investments or convertible notes? Uh, it's a mix. It's a mix. We, we like to do more equity, um, less convertibles. Mm -hmm. But again, we work with the founders on whatever is the, is the best, um, best solution for them. Uh, but mm -hmm. our, our preference is to do equity and we encourage founders, even for their subsequent rounds at seed, we encourage them to to get to do price rounds versus um, layering up notes over notes. Okay. Um, how do you process the current investment climate where capital is moving further and further upstream? How does a pre-seed or a seed investor or even an entrepreneur for that matter mitigate the Series A gap? It's really exciting what's going on, isn't it? Um, the, there's, there's a major shift going on in, in the VC industry, and I, I think this is a great time to be an entrepreneur because you have more choices um, today than you've ever had in the past. And so, you know, you look at a new class of pre-seed pre funds now coming up to fill the gap that is left by seed funds moving later because uh, yep. they want to write bigger checks. You have platforms coming up which enable – angels to discover companies and companies to discover angels. You yeah. have seed extension funds that have come up um, to fill the gap left with the series A funds expecting more progress. Um, you know, and, and then you have the whole ICO movement going on, which depending on who you are is a threat or an opportunity. And so um, I, I think this is a, this is a fascinating time. And, and what it's, what it's doing is, it's making everybody, it doesn't matter who you are in the ecosystem, it's making you adjust. Uh, for instance, there was an explosion of seed funds um, a, a few years ago, and I believe there were numbers published like 400 plus micro funds. Um, what, what, what that did is there was too much capital being invested at seed, which should happen because seeds is about experimenting a lot. 
but there were too few funds left to do A's and, and it created a real series A crunch. But over the last few quarters, what some of these seed funds have realized is there's a real opportunity for us to move to, do, to A and not just do seeds. And they're larger funds, they want to write average larger checks. So they're now morphing into, you'll, you'll increasingly hear them saying we're seed and series A funds. Whereas in the past, they've only maintained we're a seed fund. So I think, um, I, I think it's creating real opportunities for people to look at where gaps are and how they can, they can morph to fill those gaps so that they are adding more value and therefore creating more value um, on all sides. Now, you know, the, the other part of this, which is where the entrepreneur's choice plays a huge role is, uh, if you think about it, investing is a, is a commodity business. Everybody's selling money and trying to buy equity in your company. Um, and, and therefore, entrepreneur is, um, is the king because they get to decide who is the investor who they will partner with and, and buy money from by selling their equity. Um, when, when that happens, investors are forced to think about what is the value that I bring? How do I differentiate my money, my commodity, from everybody else's money? So we're, we're seeing these, um, you know, the evolution of the, the value-add investor, and value is different for, for the entrepreneurs. So everybody's trying to find, um, you know, the, the bigger firms have their brand, and, and their founders who seek that as the primary value will take that. And some others are competing on price. So founders who seek better valuations will, will partner with them. And then there are firms that offer operating value, which is what founders seek. So they'll, they'll partner with entrepreneurs who are best aligned to that value. So I think what, what, what ultimately that leads to is a value-based ecosystem. That's not to say that there's not a whole lot of me-toos as well. There, there are, there will always be. Um, we're, we're maturing as an industry. But it's, it's fascinating to see all these changes happening at the same time, creating a lot more um, choice and a lot more value for entrepreneurs. So, you know, my read is that we have now uh, almost like a five-stage um, ecosystem before Series A, which is, you know, friends of friends and family, pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, and then either small series A or large series A. <laughs> it's, uh, it's no longer the simple world of seed and series A. And, and that, I, I think it's a part of commoditizing, right? Because there's a lot more awareness. There's a lot more firms. In the good old days, there were, there were a few firms, and, and, you know, it was easier for everyone to fall into one of the three buckets. Um, yeah. Now you're hearing, even within seed investors, you will hear, well, we do late seeds. We do mango seeds. I, 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 I don't understand what's a mango seed versus a pear seed versus, you know, some other fruit seed. Um, but... but <laughs> It, because that differentiation is becoming more difficult, um, it, it, investors have to find their niche because they know that yeah. if they don't, entrepreneurs will not find them. People are defining niches, and, and it's, I, I agree with you. It's a healthy trend. I, I recently spoke with an investor who, who made a pretty good distinction, at least in his mind, of where he plays in the game, which he says we play post-seed, 
um, pre-series A, and and he's post-seed not necessarily not and pre-series A. And I asked him, what is how do you differentiate between post-seed and pre-series A? And he said, well, you know, we consider post-seed as traction, not only validation, but traction, but not necessarily velocity. Whereas pre-series A is traction plus velocity. So I'm like, okay, fair enough. That's you know, that's one way to define things. And and yeah, I think the it, it's just to, really just to finish up what I was saying, the, the velocity risk is a big risk. Whether you're a venture scale company or not, velocity is a big de- determiner of you know whether you're you are a venture scale company or not. And if you're not, sure. you shouldn't be raising Series A for sure. I think. Right, and then you know the same investors you will find doing Series A rounds without any traction pre-product. It's there's a whole lot of different phenomenons going on, and you know there's obviously hype cycles that play a role in that. Uh, but um, you know clearly uh, there, there's a, there, there's new definitions and, and new niches being carved, um, and in some cases they are they are they are right. And and if you are an entrepreneur who falls in that category or a startup that falls in that category, um, they are the right value investors for you. Yeah, well, I think, you know, if you have to make 500 micro VC funds productive, there needs to be some of these segmentation and, and clear definition. Otherwise, nobody will find anybody, right? It's going to be constantly hit or miss, or it's going to be very inefficient. The information flow needs to get much more efficient, and people do need to define themselves as what do they want to do. But to your point that there are exceptions and people do make exceptions, I think it's when people... Um, have really great teams, either teams with track record or teams that come out of specific scenarios with very, very compelling insights into specific problem areas, like you're coming out of Facebook with some great insight about scalability in some aspect of technology, and there's you're the world's expert because nobody else has built technology at that scale. Those kinds of specific scenarios, I think, produce entrepreneurs where People are willing to make exceptions. Sure. So what uh, is your um, read of unicorn mania? As a pre-seed or seed investor, you could get buried under later stage liquidation preferences. How do you protect yourself? Um, well, I, I think it's, there's a bigger trend in play, right? So there's obviously a rush for unicorns, but... Um, I think the bigger trend that's in play, which is causing a lot of that, is the over-glamorization of VC and VC-backed entrepreneurship. And I think you will appreciate this a lot because you, in your focus, you don't see just VC-backed entrepreneurship. You're seeing... Oh, I'm one of the most vocal critics of this um, trend. If you look at my writings, you will see over and over again, I point this out, is that entrepreneurship is not equal to financing. Entrepreneurship equals customers, <laughs> revenues, and profits. Financing is optional. Exit is optional. Exactly, and so the the the, the over glamorization ultimately leads to you know kind of what you just said. Um, founders celebrating financing rounds more than customer wins, or yeah. hype cycles that create massive valuations which are unsustainable, and then they realize, oh shit, we set up too high of expectations for ourselves, and we can't execute on that. Um, and then on the VC side, you know that that same phenomenon leads to logo shopping. I mean, you will see firms that have 
all kinds of unicorn logos on their uh, portfolio page. But when you ask them about what's your ownership in those companies, it, it's, it's ridiculously small, which means even with a great exit, they're not going to return any dollar value to the fund. And so um, all in all, what I'm trying to, to get to is that the, the unicorn rush is not the uh, is a symptom of the of the bigger problem, and so when we when we think about this, um, you know we're we're relatively new um, as VCs, and so when we started, we had to surround ourselves with people who've done this for decades, and we're very fortunate that we were able to to get their support and get their mind share, because from them we learned that these hype cycles, the ups and downs come and go all the time every few years there's something that's you know flavor of the month and then you know it will ride up the waves yeah. and then it'll, it'll die down um, but when you've gone through a few fund cycles and the the ups and downs of the economic cycles you kind of know that investing is more about discipline um, and and therefore if you are able to build your discipline strategy um, you will be able to weather the ups and downs so we went we went about you know talking to people that we admire and learn from, we went about building our discipline strategy, which ultimately comes down to a few things. Number one, that we're going to stay small. At the stage at which we invest, a large fund will distract us from operating at the stage at which we invest. And so we, we will stay small, and it, it helps that for smaller funds, or let me put it this way, it's easier to return a smaller fund um, you don't have to chase unicorns. When we invest, we expect every one of our portfolio companies to become a billion-dollar company. But that doesn't yep. mean that if they don't, we won't be able to return the fund. Because, right. you know, just playing the numbers, if I'm a $25 million fund, a $250 million exit or, you know, a $300 million exit after some dilution returns my fund. So, yep. but that, that's predicated on the ownership being a big variable in that. And so that's the second thing we focused on is we we need to be investing with conviction. We need to invest early in a limited number of companies, but we need to secure 10 to 12, 15% ownership for the risk that we are taking, right? So it's, it's all a function of the price being reflective of the risk state of the company. And so, yeah. um, you, you know, I think those are the kind of two internal discipline uh, mechanisms that we, we deploy is keep the fund small, um, invest with conviction and uh, with a meaningful ownership stake such that when there's an exit, it's capable of returning the fund multiple times over. Um, and then lastly, uh, this is kind of the externality that um, comes to mind is there's different types of founders. There's there's founders who are really, really good at creating their own brand and, and building the hype around what they're doing. Um, yeah. And they will they will be able to raise a lot of money um, because of their past success or for whatever reason. And then there are founders who are just very execution focused. They will uh, raise only what is needed to get to the next milestone. Um, and they, they, they look at capital as a means to the end, not the end by itself. So they don't celebrate funding rounds. They just go, okay, this was necessary. Now we have the, the financing. Let's go build the team that we need to build and execute on the milestones. When we look at our portfolio, we're, we're actually pretty humble that we have more of the latter kind of founders. And so 
that gives us some comfort that these companies will be built in kind of the more traditional uh, yeah capital efficient way capital efficient and and sustainable revenue based growth type of format which means they won't raise 16 rounds uh, before yeah. an exit they will raise some rounds i mean we'll by many hundred day. miles that is our preferred category of entrepreneurs we try to steer our entrepreneurs in that direction is that don't gratuitously go out and raise money try to build things capital efficient and everybody ends up making more money with very few exceptions mostly people make more money by being capital efficient than raising great, huge amounts of money then get buried under liquidation preferences and no not make any money for eight years of work right and and what's the point? Which happens all the time. You are building, it, it, it happens all the time. And I would say, you know, being on the VC side now, I would say there's some blame that we, the VCs, have to take for that because we're we're not being responsible as investors, as board members, to bring that uh, mindset to these to to that set of entrepreneurs. But um, you know, I, I think the the I think people are realizing. Um, themselves that this let's just keep infusing capital to continue to to grow the company is not a sustainable way of building the company. Well, um, it's and, coming and, from are these uh, companies raising the firms, the VC firms raising huge amounts of capital, and then <laughs> the management fees are so big they don't really need to deliver any returns. They're just sitting and becoming fat with fat management fees. Well, that's where you, you you know to your earlier question about the the trend in the VC industry that's going on. You, you as a VC, you have to decide: do you want to optimize for fees or optimize for carry? And yeah. As a smaller fund, we're optimizing for carry because we're not going to get rich on the fees. But if we do our job well, the carry is what's going to generate the the bigger returns for us as GP. Right. But what you know, as the funds that started off as micro VCs and they are now two hundred million dollar funds, two fifty million dollar funds, obviously they're optimized for 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 fees and and whatever their thinking is, which I'm pretty sure they have some strong rationale for it. But um, they to to generate carry, they have to first return two hundred fifty million dollars. Yeah. Right. And, and therefore. With that kind of volume, they have to make bets, which is which kind of becomes Much unicorn chasing. Because yeah. right. if you if you don't exit for you know two and a half billion, my ten percent is not going to be able to return the fund. So that's well, that one and, and billion dollar company. Nitin, two hundred and fifty is a small number. Look at the numbers. I mean, the funds are now one billion, billion two. I mean, and then of course there's South Bank, which is the whole other. Complete. That's a you different know, ball game. And normally, <laughs> in yeah. fact, I mean, I just wrote on my Facebook uh, timeline this morning while looking at one of these uh, SoftBank articles, and I said, well, you know, it looks like SoftBank is going to own Silicon Valley because, with a few exceptions, every single company is going to end up exiting into SoftBank. Yeah, it, I mean, and that's a different phase. So I, I, I don't look at kind of the soft tech growth stage investing, but I, you know, even if we focus at kind of the pre-Series A list of investors, yeah. right? Some of these yeah. funds started out as fifteen to twenty-five, thirty million dollar funds, and they are now one hundred fifty, one hundred seventy-five, two hundred million dollar funds. And right. with that that scale of change, you you just can't do the same thing, and so. Uh, part of this is just, you know, you're absolutely right. As VCs change their strategies and, and funds become bigger, obviously there's more fees 
but the strategy of execution then has to change because you can't be investing in six times the number of companies that you were investing in before. VC is not That's right. an endlessly scalable business. It's not a tech business which scales. It's a services business. That's right. And so right. we, we, you know, very fortunate again that we had the learnings from um, some of the greats in the business who told us that, guys, you, have to, you will have to find where you tap out on bandwidth. And you'll have to build a discipline to not go beyond that. And, and that's why, you know, we get referred a lot of deals where, hey, guys, this is a really hot company. You know, who's who is in the company? You should come in with a 50K check. And, and we think about it and we go, you know what? It's going to give us a logo on the portfolio page. But in terms of the, even if this company is as successful as everybody thinks it will be, it's not going to return anything meaningful because our ownership is going to be nothing in this round. Mm. And so we, yeah. we've, therefore, you know, to your question, I came to the, to the internal discipline about being, being true to who you are and operating with that mentality. You know, a big part of that is let, let's practice what we preach. We, you know, every VC tells founders, oh, you got to know your customer really, really well. You need to stay focused on what you start with. You, you need to execute with a lot of discipline and focus. We should practice that ourselves too. Yeah, I agree. I agree. A good positioning is in whatever business you do, whether it's being a venture capital fund or being an entrepreneur, there's no substitute for clear, laser-sharp positioning and being very, very clear about what is it that you want to do. Right. I would agree. So one last question, which is a another trend that is, I would say a little bit uh, less visible, but I have, I have talked to a number of investors who have uh, zeroed in on this one. And again, it's good positioning for those of who have uh, zeroed uh, on this trend. It's good positioning. So, lot, you know, we're in 2017. Lots of stuff have already been built, and especially if you're B2B investors. Nowadays, there aren't that many wide-open opportunities out there. So building another Salesforce.com is not that easy. But there are many, many niche opportunities. And some of these businesses need to be built for very small amounts of capital, maybe $1 or $2 million, and sold for 10 to $15 million. In some cases, built for 250 to 500K and sold for 5 to $10 million. And I've... Mm-hmm. I'm encountering a class of investors who are actually looking at these. These are smaller TAMs. You know, they're not billion-dollar TAMs. They're $100 million, $150, $200 million TAMs. Is this something you have appetite for? You know, I I, I think there's two parts to your question, right? One is um, a lot of of development has happened in 2017, so where's the big opportunities for the disruptive style um, yeah. innovation. And then there's, with what has happened in the last 20 years, because the world has literally changed in the last 20 years. Um, yep. Internet, mobile um, have been, uh, and cloud have been the, the big enablers of where we are. And that has opened up a lot of opportunities for, in the venture world, what we've come to call incremental innovation. Yep. Incremental innovation is, it, it doesn't mean it's not innovation. It is innovation, but it's not as scalable as Salesforce was when it was built 
or right. even Airbnb was when it was built. I mean, just imagine if today someone comes out with the idea of I'm starting Airbnb, which I'm sure you hear a lot of those pitches. Oh, yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it doesn't make sense because the, the macro factors that helped Airbnb be there at the right time um, don't exist anymore. It's too late for those macro factors. And so the, the why now is, is a big element of disruptive innovation and investing in disruptive innovation. But the incremental innovation is still a huge component of entrepreneurship. And, yeah, you know, huge. I'm sure you look at a lot of um, pitches from developing countries and the, the entrepreneurial ecosystem in developing countries is everybody's a mom and pop shop and they're selling their services. And, and you know, slowly they start becoming businesses. They start hiring people. So what Internet, mobile, cloud and other innovations on the on the side of health, for example, um, what they've done is opened up opportunities for people to start and build either small software businesses or software-enabled services businesses or just internet-enabled services businesses, which are booming. And you can build a great cash flow positive business in a short amount of time, um, and, and that's great payoff for the entrepreneurs, whether they exit out of it for you know, as you said, a few million dollars, or they just keep taking the profit, that's, that's great payout for the work that goes into building that. Um, and, and I think more and more of that is happening. At the same time, there's room for disruptive innovation because as old things get solved, opportunities for new things open up. I mean, you see the developments around CRISPR. Um, you know, I was, I was yeah. just uh, reading about... 60 years ago was when tracking things through satellite was first introduced. And today, almost our entire life is tracked by GPS. So it's yeah. taken 60 years for GPS to mature to this level where it's, it's inherent in our, in our lives everywhere. Uh, it, 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 a lot more technologies and products are still being built using that technology. So at, at a fundamental level, we're, we're seeing technologies like you know, CRISPR coming out, blockchain actually becoming a thing, distributed computing actually becoming a thing, um, AI moving from decision trees to actually something that, that you can call is uh, capable of analyzing tremendous volumes of data with machine learning and deep learning. So I think those open opportunities for disruptive innovation in industries where we've taken things for granted we have taken things like this is just how it is because for a generation, uh, two generations, we grew up in that ecosystem. Think airplanes, right? We, mm -hmm. As growing up, we just saw airplanes are, are like this. They take us from one place to another. So they will always be like this. And now there are companies coming up questioning that because mm -hmm. there's new kinds of materials available. There's new kinds of fuels available. There's new kinds of propulsion technologies available. So I think those will continue to create disruptive innovation opportunities, and that's where venture capital is the best fit. Because it's high risk, yes. it's long sure. gestation, it needs patient capital, but for incremental innovation, which will get cash flow positive in the near future, there's much easier, cheaper, and better sources of capital available where investors will invest for cash flow. And well, I, not I only that, not only that, there's another category, actually, um, which is, you know, there are parts of 
um, you know, if you look at all the technology companies or even large companies that have uh, Fortune 500 that have certain technology needs to really, today everybody is a technology company at some level, right? So there are, there are specific niches within either software product portfolios or uh, IT portfolios of larger companies where there are niche requirements. And oftentimes, you can actually build a business or build a product, get a few customers, and just sell out, and, and you, you don't really invest in building the channel, which is expensive. You just go to market to, through somebody else's channel who already has the channel. You're an adjoinder to, or adjunct to their existing portfolio, and it's, you can leverage their channel. And maybe the TAM is $100 million, $200 million, but for a corporate, a $100 million, $200 million product line where you don't have to do the R&D is very attractive. Yeah, and, and I, I meet mean, I mean entrepreneurs all the time like that. Who, who, who started their businesses with solving a very niche problem um, at the company where they were. And they realized, well, we can, exactly. we can separate out and build a bootstrap business to just solve that. We've captive all back in this in. company. And they either sold it back in or they found, you know, eight companies just like that. And, right. and now they're, they're just, you know, servicing that business and, and making a few million dollars a year for doing that. Um, yeah. And so I, that's, that's exactly what I meant, that, you know, venture capital is not a good fit for that because those exits will not be capable of returning venture-type returns. The risk profile is just very different. Risk profile for, for that kind of a business is great to return cash in the short term, but it's not going to become the billion-dollar exit. Um, and, and I think um, I, I think there's a lot of options for entrepreneurs today to raise money for those kind of businesses. I know angels who are looking specifically. There are angels who are looking and there are small funds. There are micro VCs who are also doing this kind of stuff or, you know. Exactly right. There are funds in Chicago. I know Indy VC is trying to do something similar. And that kind of goes back to the earlier topic we talked about, which is where where is there a gap in the industry and and what can we do as as VCs to go in and fill that gap? we see is a, is a subcategory of investors, and so we don't we we can call ourselves VCs or we can call ourselves whatever the new category investor is to go fill that gap um, in yeah. in the industry, and and it will continue to happen as we demand as it comes in, um, investors will follow it. Yeah. Well, this is a great conversation, Nitin. I'm uh, thrilled to uh, bring you to our audience. And uh, audience, if you're enjoying these episodes, please go to iTunes.com and uh, review our podcasts, and we will keep bringing you more and more. By the way, also every Thursday morning, you can come to our uh, free mentoring roundtable. Go to the website, 1mby1m.com, and look for the free public roundtable tab and register to pitch or attend. And we look forward to seeing you there. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon.